you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. I will never forget, I was in high school, and there was a a reoccurring longing in my mom's heart to see Mount Rushmore. Now, you might have a different way of thinking of spending a vacation, but this was my mom's dream forever. She talked about it the whole time we were young. Well, one summer, my parents get the brave idea that we are going to take an RV road trip from here to Minneapolis, Minnesota in late fall, right? Now, if you know my mom, she's a huge Minnesota Vikings fan, and the Raiders, which is my stepdad and my team, uh, were playing the Vikings. So we hopped in what we cleverly called the big old rolling turd and drove all the way to Minnesota. Now, I could have a flurry of stories to tell you uh, that would embarrass each of my siblings, but I won't tonight, about that ride and what we all encountered and endured. But after Minnesota, the goal for us was then to embark our way to South Dakota to see said Mount Rushmore. Um, This was right around Thanksgiving, and it was just a few days before Thanksgiving that was the game, and then we were kind of spending all that time out there. And so it is the day before Thanksgiving, and we arrive in South Dakota. And pretty much all that's about out there is Mount Rushmore. And I remember we pull up to the monument. We all load up out of the big old rolling turd, and we come and we stand before this monument. There is still a little bit of fresh snow on the ground from being out there, and we are standing there all of what feels about 10 minutes. And as we stand there beholding the glory that is this face is carved in stone, my mother leans over to my stepdad and says, I want to be home for Thanksgiving tomorrow. (laughs) You see, what was a longing in her heart for so many years when she got there was a little bit underwhelming. Almost a kind of, that's it, right? All this time, all these years, all this longing, all that time on the road, And this is what we get? And if we're honest, it was a little smaller than we had anticipated. We thought it being massive and huge and, you know, incredible. And it's just four guys' face carved into the side of a mountain. So um, there was a little bit of an underwhelming aspect. And so that night we drove from South Dakota to Pueblo, Colorado in one shot, me and my stepdad, with the help of a lot of Red Bull and sunflower seeds. We made it that far. And the rest of the trek in. I tell that story because that is all a feeling we can resonate with, feeling disappointed about something we had our hopes up for. The last two years have felt like an absolute blur. And this last year was one for the books for sure. In many conversations I have with a lot of people about their life, they feel that very similar feeling that the last two years or so have felt, to be honest, underwhelming, disappointing. I mean, can you believe it? We're at Christmas, about to embark on 2022, 
right? This is the time and year that sci-fi writers in the 80s were projecting that we would have floating cars and hoverboards and all this other stuff, and we have TikTok and Snapchat and DoorDash. <laughs> but this is the moment we find ourselves in. And what a year it's been. You see, the year came in with Times Square celebrating New Year's Eve to an empty street. For the first time ever in its history, nobody was out on the streets for Times Square. We wa walked through together the insurrection at the Capitol that took place this year, which was crazy from all of our points of view. The famous TV show Friends had their reunion special, and all the people who loved that show rejoiced as they got to see their six favorite characters reunited again. The United States withdraws from Afghanistan, and we watch from afar, heartbroken at the things taking place. The 2020 Olympics returned in 2021, and we saw athletes compete from all around the world, bringing us some sort of sense of normalcy again. We were struck again with earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, and snowstorms all around the world. Legendary artist Tay-Tay Taylor Swift re-released her Red album, and the 15-year-old girl in many hearts rejoiced as they got to hear Taylor's version of the song. And here locally, our very own Los Lunas High School Tigers won their first ever state football championship. Sorry if you're from Belen or anywhere else. We rep Lowestown at Zion. Many of you find yourself not only reflecting on the year as a whole that's been experienced by all of us, but the year that's been experienced by you. Maybe, if you're honest, you find yourself longing for something more. Maybe, if you're honest, you would say that you're exhausted from the constant noise of partisan politics. And the only conversations you hear as of late are how all about the other side is evil. Maybe, if you're honest, you'd say you are disenchanted with the modern framework of dating and hookup culture. You see, it promised you happiness and pleasure, but has only delivered deep loneliness and insecurity. Maybe if you were honest, you would say you're discouraged about the future because all the plans you made before have seemed to dissolve. Maybe if you were honest, you would say that you have become increasingly more and more cynical. What started off as pragmatic realism quickly became indifferent pessimism as you look out into the world. And maybe if you are honest, you are disillusioned about your faith. The God in the world of you that seemed so easy to hold in later days seems like a ghost you can't get your arms around. Wherever you find yourself tonight, there is at the bottom of all of these honest thoughts buried a fear. What if I'm wasting the life I have been given? William Irving says this, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all of your activity, despite all of the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by various babbles life has to offer. It is here, in this moment, that all of these thoughts waging in our mind comes to us a story. 
A story that has transcended generations. A story that has changed lives. A story that speaks to all these areas of fear and doubt. A story that subverts all of our ideas about power and what it means to be human. A story that, if we're honest, is really strange, but at the same time, incredibly beautiful. It is a story that, for many of us, it is familiar, but one we love to hear told time and time again. And brothers and sisters, it is the story of Christmas. You see, thousands of years removed from this story, across the globe we gather to celebrate this moment. That in the middle of nowhere, a child is born. And not just any child, but God become human. Not to a family of wealth and prestige, but to a poor immigrant family. And he was not born into glamour and fame, but into obscurity and poverty. And his birth was not announced with heralds and songs to the nations, but rather to a group of filthy shepherds in the silence of open fields. This is the story of Emmanuel, God with us. Tonight, we're going to be looking at John's reflection on what's called the incarnation, God becoming human. And John begins his teachings with these words, the word became flesh. Now, the word is a, is a Greek word. It's a title. It's logos. And John uses this title to speak about Jesus. You see, what John is doing is he's drawing our minds back to the creation story. If you spend any time around the Bible, one of the things the Bible authors love to do is hide Easter eggs all throughout their writing. And what the biblical authors are constantly assuming is that you're immersing yourself in the story so you catch all the Easter eggs. Many of you have watched Spider-Man recently. Don't worry, no spoilers if you haven't gotten there yet. But you know you get to go to a good film when you know somebody who knows all the Easter eggs that can let you in on all the stuff after the fact, right? You're talking with them, do you see this, this guy, this, that thing, whatever? Again, no spoilers. And they get to share and give you insights on all the things you might have missed. And this is what the biblical authors do all the time. They hide these beautiful Easter eggs all throughout the story. And so when John uses logos, the word, he is wanting to draw your attention back to the beginning, the creation of all things. How did God bring everything into existence? Was it through hammer and nail? No, it was through the spoken word that God spoke all things into being. And what John is wanting to recall your mind to is that there in the beginning, there is Jesus in creation, bringing life and order and light to a dark, chaotic world. In breaking is the kingdom of God in Jesus, establishing creation order. But then John says something striking, baffling if you were a Jew, that that word logos the same power of creative order became flesh. Now, the word here is sarks, and it could have a couple different meanings, but the most predominant one is like skin and bone flesh, what actually makes us human beings. And the very one who speaks the universe into existence, John says, has become a human. The very one who transcends time and matter wraps himself in human fragility, mortal and meek, 
Now, Jesus has not come in the body of a 24-year-old Instagram influencer with photoshopped abs, shiny white teeth, and smelling of expensive cologne. He comes into the world as a baby, crying, sleeping, pooping baby. This is how God comes into the world. But that baby grows up. Jesus had acne, body odor, morning breath, bedhead. He went through the awkward stages that is puberty. Jesus had good days and bad days. He laughed, he cried, he slept, he ate. He went for walks and talked with his friends. Jesus experienced loss and grief, sorrow and pain, frustration, joy, anger, hunger. What John is telling us is that Jesus knows what it means to be human. The author of Hebrews reflects on this same idea when he says this, for we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The first thing about Jesus becoming human is that he's able to empathize with your weakness. Can we be honest, brothers and sisters? Life on planet Earth is hard sometimes. Christmas can be hard sometimes. Yes, we get to gather with family and friends and open up gifts and see beautiful lights and watch the Grinch for how many times over again. But for some of us, there'll be a table or seat at the table that's missing this year. And that's felt. For some of us, we think about an estranged son or daughter who we haven't seen in years and won't come to Christmas. For some of us, it was hoping that by this Christmas, the illness would be gone, and it's not. We still wage war against it. Being human can be really hard sometimes, if we're honest. And the story of Christmas is that Jesus knows, and he understands. You see, a lot of our misunderstanding of God comes when we think that he seems distant, that he seems too far away or simply too busy peering into the global situations happening that he can't offer me any help. But the story of Christmas is the exact opposite. Christmas reminds us that God became human and that he was not far off but living as we do that he may impart his life into us. And whatever you come in feeling this evening, Jesus understands. If you come in tonight burdened by grief, Jesus grieved also. If you come in tonight broken because of broken relationships and you're wounded, Jesus was betrayed by his best friends. If you come in suffering with physical illness, Jesus endured through immense torture. If you come in stressed out, Jesus was so stressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood. If you come in tonight misunderstood and slandered, Jesus was rejected and gossiped by the very ones who were supposed to receive him. If you come in tonight tired and worn down, Jesus knows what it means to be weary. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what it means to be human. And though all of us can empathize with these feelings, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he doesn't just empathize with our weakness, he has the power to overcome it. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to live in human skin, 
but he also has the power to defeat the stronghold of sin. Notice what the author of Hebrews said, he was tempted but did not sin. Jesus experienced all of what it meant to be human, but he did not fail. Now, I know what you're thinking, but bro, that's Jesus. And I understand the sentiment, but hear me in this, Jesus was tempted as we are, meaning Jesus had the capacity to sin, but resisted instead. Jesus had the capacity to fail. This is why the, the devil comes to tempt him in the wilderness. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane we see this moment in Jesus' life where he asked the Father, if there is any other way for this cup to pass, please let it be so. But nonetheless, let your will be done. Jesus knows what it's like to be human, but he has not failed, and he did not failed. Jesus looked sin straight in the face and refused it. Jesus does all of this so that he could reconcile the relationship between humanity and God. The author of Hebrews also says, since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And Jesus' resisting of sin and becoming human, he made way for us to be free from the bondage that is our humanity, that is our flesh, that is our sinful nature. Christmas is the reminder that Jesus knows what it means to be human and overcame the very things that plague us. The author John goes on to say, and he made his dwelling among us. You see, the entire prologue of John is steeped in the story of the scriptures. <clears throat> and again, John is wanting you to catch the Easter egg that he's dropping here. The word dwell or dwelling is, is, the, is the literally translated tabernacle. So he's saying Jesus tabernacled among us. Now, if you're a Bible scholar, all the red lights are flickering on and off and you're getting excited because you know what this means. You see, the stories of the scriptures begin in the garden where humans and God can enjoy one another's presence fully. But as you know, this does not last. Humanity decides to rebel against the loving God and choose good and evil for themselves, separating themselves from the life of God. But God chooses not to end the story there, but make a way to be with them again. You see, in the Old Testament, God establishes a system by which they could still encounter his presence. Now, it comes with all sorts of rules. Don't believe me? Read Leviticus, right? For ceremonial purification. And that if you came in unpure, that God is so good, that if anything not good or evil comes into his presence, he overcomes it. And so he sets out all these rules and boundaries that, look, if you're going to come into my presence, here are all the things that we need to have established that you may be with me. And he does this through, first, a tabernacle, which is a really fancy word for saying a tent. It is this tent that is outdoors. And as time goes on, the Lord instructs Solomon to build him a permanent tabernacle, which is the temple, a permanent place for his spirit to be. And that in the life of Jesus, Jesus says he is that temple. And that when Jesus dies and is resurrected, the scriptures tell us that the veil and the holy of holies, which is the hot spot of God's presence, was torn. And God's presence was unleashed onto the world. 
But what John is drawing your attention to here and now is that Jesus is the embodiment of the presence of God. The same presence that would kill you if you came too close is now eating lunch with prostitutes and tax collectors. God's presence among us. And that presence has made its home, its dwelling, its tabernacle here with you and me. And where the presence of God is, everything changes. And we see this clearly in the life of Jesus. Wherever Jesus shows up, the lost are found. The forgotten are seen. The sick are healed. The broken are made whole. The hungry are fed. The blind see. The lame walk. The tired find rest. The greedy become generous. The proud become humble. The strangers become welcome. The outcasts become family. And the dead are raised to life. Because where the presence of God is, it changes everything. And the presence is no longer bound up behind a curtain in the temple. It is unleashed onto the world in this man, Jesus. And that presence, brothers and sisters, is running after you here and now, inviting you into the life you have been longing for. It is life with God. And this Christmas story is the beautiful reminder that in Jesus, we find the home we've been looking for in the presence of God. John goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, now, glory is not a word we use often in our modern vocabulary. Um, the only instance I could really think of is like when you've had like the best meal possible and someone was like, how was it? To ascribe the, the measure of the meal, you say glorious, right? It was just, it was phenomenal. The top button is unbuttoned, belly is out. It was glorious, right? But we really don't use that word often. Right? If someone's going to throw you a birthday party, you're not like, oh, all these people are here to celebrate my glory. Right? We don't use that kind of vernacular. You see, the word is incredibly rare, but the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Can you say kavod? And it literally means heavy. That's a literal translation. Now, we kind of utilize this word um, when we experience a scenario that has a great gravitas or weight to it. Right? You watch a really sad movie and you leave the movie and you say, that was heavy. You're with people who are grieving and having a hard time. And if someone asks you how that was, you say, it was really heavy. Because there's this way of describing being in a place where there's great significance or things taking place. And we utilize that word heavy. This is what the biblical authors want you to have in mind with this word kavod. It speaks to significance, beauty, abundance, fullness. Look at what uh, it says in Exodus 33. Speaking of God's glory. And the Lord said to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you, can, you may stand on a rock. Where my and when my glory passes by, when that kavod passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So this God who becomes incarnate, comes in the flesh, is so glorious, has such a significance, a beauty, a heaviness, a fullness about him 
That Moses is like, I want to see your glory. And God's like, you don't know what you're asking for. If you saw my glory, it would kill you. But I'll make you a compromise. I'll stick you in this little wedge between the rock, right? And you can't see my face, but you can see the backside of my shoulder as I'm going through. And when Moses saw this, his face was glowing, right? The whole thing, not radiance, you know, it was, it was radiant. It wasn't because of makeup or anything like that. His face was literally glowing before the people of God because he saw just a glimmer of his glory. And what the author John is saying, we have seen that glory in this man, Jesus. And how is it expressed? He says clearly, with grace and truth. John says that this glory came to us full of grace and full of truth. If there is something that our world is longing for right now, it's grace. Jesus communicated grace, not with a definition of exactly what grace is, but stories of grace. I love what Philip Yancey says. He says this, at the center of Jesus' parables of grace stands a God who takes initiative towards us. A lovesick father who runs to meet the prodigal a landlord who cancels a debt too large for any servant to reimburse. An employer who pays 11th hour workers the same wage as the first hour crew. A banquet giver who goes out to the highways and byways in search of undeserving guests. Jesus displays grace for us, not in Webster's Dictionary, but in stories about people. <clears throat> I think of the one in John 8, of a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees and the leaders bring her to Jesus and ask that she would be stoned in accordance with the law. And Jesus steeps down to her level. And he writes something in the sand. And after doing so, the people who are surrounded, ready to have this woman stoned to death, begin to drop their stones one by one. And with a tear-stained face, the woman looks up and sees Jesus. And Jesus asks her a simple question. He says, where are your accusers? And she looks around and realizes that all the rocks have been dropped and no one else is around her but Jesus. And she says, I don't see them, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is a story of grace. Jesus wants to heal and restore that which has been broken by sin. And brothers and sisters, grace is the heart of God. It is his undeserved love and favor towards us. That while certainly we did not earn it and don't deserve it, he gives it freely. And God doesn't give it freely begrudgingly. Oh, look who's here again in need of grace. But he gives it with delight. Many of you have come in tonight honestly ashamed of who you've been lately. And the Christmas story is a beautiful reminder that God's love for you is so fierce that nothing would stand in the way of him restoring relationship with you. Now, not the best version of you, not the you you wish you were or the you you put yourself on display to the world, but the real you, the you you are when you think nobody is looking or is around. It is that person who God loves and seeks to bring to wholeness. And one side of the coin is grace, but the other side of that same coin is truth. I love what Tim Keller says this, says this, truth without grace is not really truth, and grace without truth is not really grace. We live in a moment where truth has been redefined. Truth used to mean reality or that which corresponds to reality, but now truth means 
whatever I want to be true, not necessarily what is in reality. We are living in a moment of deeply held beliefs rooted in lies. We believe lies about our identity, our purpose, our relationships, our finances, our future, and every other aspect of life. And hear me in this, the lies we believe give shape to the lives that we live. The lies that we believe give shape to the lives that we live. John Mark Comer says this, when we believe truth, that is, ideas that correspond to reality, we show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies, to our sexuality, to our interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself in a way that is congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creations. As a result, we tend to be happy, and when we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with reality, of God's wise and loving design, and then tragically open up our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories, we allow ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality, and as a result, we struggle to thrive because reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. Brothers and sisters, there are those in the room right now that are believing and living into lies. And the story of Christmas is to realign our lives with reality. Hear me in this. Jesus wants to free you from the tyranny of the lies you believe. He wants to set you free. Look at what he says in John 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching and you really are my disciples, then what? Then you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? It will set you free free. I get this overwhelming sense that there are those in the room right now who are held captive to lies. And this Christmas, the gift that God wants to give you is freedom. Freedom from the lies you believe about yourself. Freedom from the stories of things and horrible things spoken over you as a child. Freedom to walk in the life that God has called you to live. The Lord has for you freedom this morning. And the scripture says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And God's Spirit is going out in the proclamation of His Word right now, longing to set you free from the lies you believe. So where does this leave me and you? Los Unidos, New Mexico, at 6.23 at night, it leaves us with a simple question. What do we do with Christmas? What do we do with this story? I know there are people in this room right now who are longing for something more. The last two years, if you're honest, you've been disappointed with who you've been and what you've done. You've defined goodness and truth for yourself, and if you're honest, it leaves you longing. You have conformed to the promises of our age that always promise but never deliver. And right now, you sit in your seat and you want something different. In the middle of the disappointment of how you are living your life comes a story about this man, Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. And this evening you're confronted with the beautiful reality. First, Jesus knows what it means to be human. He knows the struggle of what it is to be like you. But not only does he understand, but he has the power to defeat sin that ensnares you. The second reality is that Jesus loves you so much that he would forfeit the glory of heaven to come to be a human being and tabernacle, dwell among us that he might reconcile you to himself and give you the gift that is his presence. And lastly, Jesus longs to free you 
from the shame of your sin and the lies you believe to life, a new life found with God. I leave you tonight with the words by Eugene Peterson in his summary of Matthew 11. Eugene Peterson pens this. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I want to ask the worship team to come back up. And as we think about the story of Christmas, I just lay it before you. What to do with this man, Jesus? What to do with these realities you've been confronted with this evening and how you might live your life based on what you've been exposed to here tonight. For some of you, you've never heard the story this way before. You're like, I was expecting to hear about donkeys and magi and all this other stuff. It's like, this was a surprise to say the least. <laughs> and there's something about this man, Jesus, right now that's compelling you, that you just feel drawn to him, that he's strange and authoritative and wise and, and perplexing and wonderful and it's all these things at the same time and Jesus right now is drawing you in by way of his spirit and the invitation for you is to come for others of you you claim to be a follower of Jesus but if you're honest this last two years have looked nothing like it and you come in feeling guilt or shame or fear of what might happen if that reality were exposed. And Jesus sees you right where you are, who you are today. And he's not blown away. Well, 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 look who walked in the door. He's a loving father longing to celebrate that his child is here. And he just wants to be with you. And the invitation from Jesus for you is to come as you are. Scars, bruises, hurts, wounds, all of it. And the Father longs to heal you and bring you to wholeness. And though you may have wandered, you are now home. There are others of you who stand firm in the faith, but this year has been hard. And you come in this evening, if you're honest, worn down, beaten down, hurting. And the invitation for Jesus is to come and to find rest in him. From all the troubles and worries of the world, let him come. And the Father's invitation is just to hold you while he heals you tonight. And there's others of you who are like, I'm doing great. I don't know what all these people got going on right now. And the invitation for you is to come and behold this man, Jesus. And to realign your heart again with why you decided to follow him. And as we enter into this time of worship and response, that you would consecrate again Jesus as Lord of your life and say, I will follow him. And that in the chaos that is Christmas of Amazon Prime and Christmas lists and tamales and pasole and the whole brigade, that right here, right now, you'd realign your heart with this story 
the story that shapes our culture here and now as we remember that God became human. And lastly, it is this source exhortation. Whatever world you're walking in, know this. God walks with you. And he is with you here and now. So brothers and sisters, would you stand with me as we just come to declare and praise who God is? To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.